EMS One Academy is the leading way in high-quality, affordable training for EMTs and paramedics nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 150 full-length training courses and 225 hours of EMS continuing education in a robust learning management system. Training is accredited by the Commission on Accreditation of Pre-Hospital Continuing Education. Administrative features include group administration, credential management, custom course creation, assignments, offline training tracking, and more, all customized to meet the needs of the EMS training officers. To schedule a free demo, go to ems1academy.com. Well, thanks for joining us again. It's time to go Inside EMS. This is the Chris and Kelly Show. We're taking you Inside EMS. <laughs> Here he is sitting in the chair to my right, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, tell me about your week. How you been? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that it's the Kelly and Chris Show. Mm. C comes before K. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, but uh, age before beauty. So um, you, you're... Uh, I think well, I got I guess, you on both those standpoints yeah, you got right me on both those Age counts. and beauty. All right. All right. Yeah. No, age. Just age. Whatever, um, whatever. It's been good, man. Uh, it's been a good week. Uh, I just just uh, dismissed my cl- students from EMT class. They're learning how to do patient assessments and all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of getting in the groove with the flipped classroom thing and uh, and uh, doing a whole lot more scenario and practice and and uh, interactive learning exercise and a whole lot less uh, lecturing. So uh, that's always a good thing. Yeah, it always is, man. So. And I think that, you know, you did a really great job in your last course. And we had the opportunity to talk to a couple of your students. Oh, yep. that's right. We didn't because you didn't. Know <laughs> well, but anyway, well, but let I'll, me ask I'll you this some question. Of the current ones on. We're 100%, by the way. Everyone Whatever. in that last class is a practicing EMT. But here's the thing <laughs> that I want to ask. One of the things that I, I'm interested to know is as you're teaching patient assessment, you're using this online vertical, you're using the, you're in this online space. What difficulties are you finding now as you're talking to people who have never conducted a patient assessment and trying to get them to grasp or understand, you know, the value of, of a solid patient assessment? You really have to have good proctors. You have to have people that know what your goals are in teaching the, the psychomotor skill of patient assessment, you know, and, and I try to reserve my, my lecture and presentation time for for the why and why it's important, uh, the how they should be able to fairly glean fairly well from their texts and their their uh, self study exercises, but um, the the thing that really makes a difference is is how good your proctor is in the remote location. So I have to have people I trust um, doing that sort of thing, and my program director is is doing that, and and Nancy is as I speak in in the other classroom, and she's uh, she's putting those EMT students to their paces, and she's seen me do it and lecture about it enough times, she knows exactly what I'm looking for. So. Uh, um, she's, she's a, a good surrogate for me. So. That sounds awesome, man. And yeah, you know, really, I mean, keep us posted on this process. And I think every so oh, yeah. often we just need to check in on it because more and more you're starting to see classrooms for EMTs and paramedics that are mm-hmm. online. And yeah. I think people really need to get an understanding about it. Cause I think this is a space that we really need to get familiar with because I think this is the future of where we're going to be for EMS education and not just EMT and paramedic, but you know, you're, you're doing your ACLS online. Now Mm -hmm. you're doing your CPR online now. And you know, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I'm going to post here on my Facebook page, I want to find out the people who are interested in an online critical care course. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, so if, if this is the space that we're going to be in, I think it's really important that we talk about it. But today, Kelly, yep. we're going to go back to a 2015 story. We talked about an EMT who was a mile away from a pediatric arrest, and she was dispatched to the call, and she didn't respond to the call. And just recently, there was an article that came out on April 20th that talked about she was arraigned on willful neglect of duty charge. And, you know, one of the things that I think this brings to light is, you know, we've talked about responsibility and we've talked about compassion and we've talked about a duty to act. And we've kind of talked about the challenges that go on in our career field. And I think that this story brings us back to the fact of that we're going to be held accountable for the work that we do or don't do. And we really have to change our mindset as to how we're delivering the highest quality of patient mm -hmm. care. And, you know, I think it's a great uh, opportunity now to revisit what are our responsibilities as EMTs and paramedics in the street, Kelly? Well, to respond, plain and simple. Uh, it doesn't matter how, what your, your dispatch triage protocols and whether you're, you're using nurse triage uh, uh, like we spoke about last uh, a couple of weeks back uh, with Fort Worth MedStar and AMR um, or how you're doing it. People pick up the phone and call 911. They expect a paramedic to arrive. Uh, that is the implicit compact uh, that we have with the public we serve. Show up. You call. We show up. That's it, it can't be more simple than that. You know, and we beat up this woman pretty hard uh, when this story initially hit the news, and, and I found it deplorable. There's no need to flog the dead horse any further. Uh, I find it comforting that she is described now as a former EMT. Um, whether that was by choice, uh, getting out of the field when she realized she no longer put her best effort into it or, or uh, it was um, not her choice and she was taken out of the profession. Either way, I consider that a victory. When you get to the point that she was and she did the thing that she did, you no longer be, uh, should be rendering patient care. You know, to me, Chris, that, that's, that has always been the attraction of EMS. No matter what uh, how burned out or, or overworked I get, uh, no matter how many systems abusers I deal with and, and how many times I run to a call and realize that, that it didn't need an ambulance, I think there's honor in simply showing up. And, and that's one of the things that always attracted me to EMS is that there is no question. I don't care how old you are, young you are, rich you are, what your social standing is, you call an ambulance, an ambulance will arrive. And, and that is always one of the, the most attractive things I've found about my profession is, is that you show up. And if you don't show up, uh, if you don't feel that urge anymore, it's time to step back and, and ask yourself honestly, should you still be in this profession? And, and the answer to that is usually no. Well, let me ask you this question. I mean, because in our career, I mean, between us, we're talking about almost, you know, 55 years of experience here. Mm -hmm. And in your career, we've seen those paramedics that have been disengaged, unprofessional, not given the best effort that they have. I don't know if there was any time in your career where you may have fallen into that. Oh, uh, I've been disengaged, unprofessional, and, and not given my best effort. I've, I've been there, got through it. But yeah, I know exactly how those guys feel. Yeah, and I, I was kind of in the same part. And a lot of that, for me, really came from, and you kind of touched on this before we started recording, really kind of came from the people who were taking care of us, the leadership, the, the managers, yeah. the directors, the supervisors, and their lack of, I don't know, dedication, compassion, professionalism to us 
caused us really to kind of disengage. So uh, mm-hmm. as we talk about this topic, and and certainly we don't want to belabor the call, uh, I think we're, we're, the catalyst for the call is, is our discussion today. But I want to ask you, how much do you think poor leadership goes into the fact of destroying an EMT or paramedic's approach to the highest quality of patient care possible? A huge, huge amount. It, it is... It's probably the number one thing uh, that led to this. Um, I'm not trying to put the the blame for Miss Thomas's uh, neglect and failure to act uh, directly on her supervisors, but this sort of thing does not happen in a vacuum. She didn't wake up and say, you know, I'm going to be a crappy EMT and not care about people this morning. That sort of thing is the culmination uh, of a long series of events that had to have either gone ignored or gone unnoticed. And the agency culture and the leadership or lack thereof is, is part and parcel of that. You know, those, those guys in Detroit uh, running neck and neck with uh, D.C. Fire EMS to be the worst EMS system in the country. And it's not their fault. I, I, I place no blame on the people on the trucks. They are, they are working in a system where they're massively overworked. They have no support from the leadership, no support from the city council. They're made to do uh, an impossible job with less than uh, adequate equipment. Uh, they got a heck of a, a hard job. And, and their city council, uh, the mayor's office, Detroit Fire Commissioner, everybody uh, in leadership positions has failed their street crews in this regard. And when you get to that point, man, you know as well as I do that the biggest stressors in any in any profession are not the uh, the people you deal with or your customers. It's it's your organizational stressors. It's your supervisors, your management structure, your coworkers that you can't stand that you're forced to work with. Those are the biggest contributors to career burnout. And in this case, um, it hit the news, and this poor woman was made to poster child for uh, disengaged, disaffected, and disenchanted EMS providers in one EMS agency. But I guarantee you, there's more people at Detroit Fire with that sort of attitude. They didn't start out that way. Something made them that way. And and a good manager, in my view, looks at that sort of situation and says, how can I fix this? And how did my actions or lack of leadership contribute to this? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm going to take a different stand to that. I think leadership certainly has the ability to motivate, to inspire, to keep that burning in your in your mm-hmm. belly for the work that you do. I don't know that Detroit Fire is the worst uh, EMS system. I don't know that the leadership within that city is the worst leadership for them. But I will say this, and I want to kind of come off on another point here to say, regardless of the leadership that we have, it really is my responsibility as a professional to determine how I'm going to do my job. If I allow poor leadership, if I allow the lack of good equipment, if I allow the the fact that my ideas aren't listened to affect my ability to do my job, I don't know that it's the leadership's fault as much as it is that I'm allowing myself now to become what I'm becoming. What you think about the most is what you become. And if I'm mm-hmm. allowing other people to dictate my professionalism, to dictate my dedication, to dictate my commitment to delivering the highest quality of patient care, regardless, and I get this question all the time, mm-hmm. as I go around the country and I talk about leadership and I go into organizations and I talk about what good leadership is, I'll always hear from the workforce who'll say, well, what am I supposed to do? 
when the leadership in our organization doesn't support me. They're not dedicated to me. They're not professional. They, have, they don't have good leadership skills. What am I supposed to do then? And I always ask them the same question. When you look at yourself as a piece of marble and you now are going to cut away what you're going to look like as a professional, does, does poor leadership influence who you're going to become? And I think that we really have to take the stance, Kelly, of thinking about that I'm not going to let anybody else's inaction dictate that I'm going to now be someone that doesn't give good action. And I think we've got to change our paradigm here because yeah. I can't point a finger at anybody else but me if I'm being subpar. Well, uh, I'm going to disagree with you, um, but not for the reason you think. When people have that discussion with you, um, those people are not disaffected and disengaged. Yes, they're discouraged. They're upset about poor leadership. But if they're actually having that discussion with you, there's still some fire in the belly. They still want to do the right thing. Um, or otherwise, they wouldn't care enough to have that discussion with you and say, how can I fix this? How can, how can I overcome bad leadership at my agency? Uh, that, those are the words of someone who still wants to do a good job as an EMT. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. The, it's still bad leadership because if you allow someone with the attitude uh, and the actions that she had to remain at your agency and, and that sort of uh, culture and that sort of, um, of attitude to, to remain, then at the very least, it's negligence and supervision and negligence and leadership, negligence and hiring practices. If you got folks at your agency that have this attitude, um, it didn't just materialize overnight, uh, and this wasn't the first sign of it. You either had to be blind, deaf, and dumb as a manager, or you just ignored the problem. You recognized it but ignored it because that didn't happen overnight. Uh, no one sits on an ambulance, and one day they go from stellar uh, employee and, and conscientious EMT to someone who and refused to respond to a call. Uh, something was going on with her that went ignored or unrecognized. In either case, the people who were supposed to act upon that attitude or recognize it and try to correct it failed well, may not be something i mean she takes responsibility she she bears the responsibility for this action but it, it it ain't an isolated thing and for that sort of thing to go on unnoticed by the leadership just shows the the lack thereof yeah, well, I mean, let's not point fingers specifically back to Detroit because there are a lot of people. Well, who, no, no. I, it's, it's, I mean, what, any EMS agency that has this sort of thing going on, you can pick any one of them. The even, you know, I'm happy with where I work, but there are folks where I work who have no business being on an ambulance. And what are you um, doing about that? And what are you doing, I'm doing about, about that? it? I, what I'm doing about it is yeah. I'm trying to be the best EMT I can be and be the best example and support for my partner. And if people seek me out, I try to be the best educator I can be and support them in every way possible. Um, Do you call that out, though, if you see poor patient care in somebody Yes, else? I call that out if I, if I see poor patient care. Well, stop care. being and defensive then, the, and you stop being I bring defensive. It to the, no, I bring it to the, to the uh, uh, attention and management. Um, but first, I'm going to bring it to the attention of the EMT. It's like, dude, not cool. 
um, you know better than that. Um, and if they can't, if they don't fix the problem or if they don't fix their attitude and I observe it again, then yeah, I'm going to bring it to the, I'm going to rat them out to management. I don't look at that as ratting. I look at that as advocacy. And that's the, um, and that's our job. I think you're right. And I, I agree with you hundred percent. So we're going to disagree then on the leadership role. Uh, and I talked about that. I shouldn't allow people, other people to affect me, but how about this, Kelly? Let's say you're right. <laughs> Let's say you're right. What about this though? What about compassion? So even if you have poor leadership and it's affecting your ability to get your job done, where where do you where do you come from that you lack the compassion that when you hear you know a, an arrest go out or a pediatric arrest or an MVA with an ejection that you just don't have that inspiration to say I'm going to go and make a difference? I mean, how does that happen? Well, compassion fatigue is a very real thing in our in our profession. Um, Mike Smith used to used to liken it to the emotional bank account. You know, your your patients. You have an emotional bank account uh, full of empathy and compassion for your fellow man, uh, and every patient uh, debits that account. They take a little bit out. Um, bad supervisors and and unpleasant partners and work stresses also debit that account. If you don't make some deposits, you're going to wind up emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. Uh, so you have to you have to have good coping mechanisms away from work. That's also that's often easier said than done. It's easy for someone to say, "Hey, have some non-work time and and you take care of you and and have some fun time with your family when you're paid a living wage and you can actually rest when you're off work." But if you go from your primary EMS job to your secondary and tertiary EMS jobs, it's not so easy to do. Uh, I don't really know how to get away from compassion fatigue other than uh, seek well, support me, from people, uh, from people who care about you and, and maybe step away from it a little bit. For the people that may not understand compassion fatigue, maybe you just give them a little definition. Uh, well, just that. Uh, your give-a-crap level about your your fellow human beings has reached an all-time low. You can't give your get your compassion meter off the peg. Um, it's... Uh, I would liken it to alarm fatigue. Um, if you're working critical care and you, you've got your, your devices and your technology and the alarm beeps in the background, you hear that beep so many times. After a while, your brain gets acclimated to it and you no longer consciously register it. Oh, man, uh, and it's the same thing. Yeah. Oh, dude. Uh, alarm fatigue is a real thing as well. No, um, you no longer consciously is, register it. Man, I would hate to think that alarms are going off. Because if alarms are going off, that means there's something going on that we got to fix. Whether it's a whether it's a ventilator issue, whether it's a a pump issue. If we're constantly hearing the same alarm and we're not doing anything to, you know, fix the occlusion or or whatever that is, uh, man. Chris, I the that. the hundredth time you go fix a non-existent occlusion uh, in a shift, uh, after a while, they all sort to run together. Then um, we need to get rid of the and, pumps and, and go back know, to the old days of counting drips and uh, making that when and I was a. Uh, when I was a brand spanking new EMT, we had two lines. We had the business line. We had the emergency line. And the emergency line uh, rang uh, through a special phone ringer. It sounded like a recess bell going off. The business line just rang a, through a standard digital telephone system, and it rang all the time. Dude, when I fell asleep at night, you could ring that business line all night long, and I'm not going to hear it. But I could hear and register even during sleep two things my unit number or my name on the radio and that emergency line 
you, you can train your brain to ignore a whole lot of things, not even trying. And, and it's entirely possible. Compassion fatigue works the same way. Your heart bleeds a little bit. Um, you feel bad for people. It affects you emotionally. Um, and, and that's a good thing for your patients bad thing for you and after a while you develop that callus on your soul man and it's a little harder to feel those things um and that's a protective mechanism for us but man when that when that callus gets so thick that you can't feel anything for your fellow man including joy uh then it's time to step away yeah but with Uh, that said then i think that you know we touched on we didn't expect to go here but now that we're here we're talking about compassion fatigue what is it that we can do to make that better for us i mean because i gotta think that if i don't as a care, leader not well i i don't know that I, I don't know that i want to address the leadership role i do agree with you that we need to have an understanding of how our people are doing the job unfortunately there are systems out there that you know need the 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 meat in the seat yeah. and they need the rubber on the road or they need the pulse in the patch and and you know i mm-hmm. think that that but again what i want to try to get across to people is don't allow anybody else to dictate your professionalism but That's true. when we talk about compassion fatigue when we talk about the fact of that we just don't feel for that patient anymore and when we think about empathy and we think about sympathy and we think about those things that just aren't happening we really need to consider you know getting a new job and moving into a career field that is going to suit us or, or give us a little bit more, I don't know, uh, uh, satisfaction. But yeah. when we're in a position to say, I don't care about death and dying, or I don't care about the individual that's just been ejected through the windshield, um, I think we got to get out of this, uh, get out of our career field. But with that said, Kelly, how but easier we, said than done, man. But why, do, why is it easier said than done? If, the, if you're doing something you truly hate, if you're doing something that truly doesn't bring you joy, that, that, that's damaging your life, why are you still doing it? If you're doing something that you truly hate, that's damaging your life, yet pays your car note, your rent, puts food on your table, but and that's your, that's your main... There brother. There's other uh, jobs out there. Not, well, maybe in your area, but not in some people's. In some people's jobs, you know, that they'll, they'll stay in that job that they hate because it pays better than working at McDonald's. So then what's you know? the answer? It's, how do we, how do we the pull these here? people back? How do Two we pull things. these people back? Two things. I'll, I'll address the leadership problem and the peer support problem. The leadership problem, if you're a leader and you notice that your people have compassion fatigue and their motivation level and their morale is through the floor, step number one is stop being a debtor to their emotional bank account. If you can't make a deposit, well, then quit making withdrawals. Don't make these people's lives tougher. If your motivational uh, technique is the beatings will continue until morale improves, you need to step back yourself as a leader. And we all know that there's plenty of EMS managers out there. I'm not going to do them the favor of calling them leaders. There's plenty of EMS managers out there who that's their philosophy. But the other side of the coin is as a peer, as a colleague, uh, as a coworker, yes, you are your brother's keeper. It is your responsibility to your profession and to your coworkers to make yourself and your coworkers the very best that they can be. And when the guy sitting 18 inches away from you who is hurting is not worthy of your time and your effort away from work, then, then you got a problem too. You need to step away. If you can't feel some compassion uh, for your partner and help them through their pain, then you got a problem as well. Uh, it, it, and 
beer nachos therapy, man. You, uh, your peers are the people who will help emotionally. Uh, your peers are the ones who will help uh, make some deposits into that emotional bank account. That's what we owe our profession overall, and that's what we owe our coworkers. You know, you work on an ambulance shift with someone, you generally work with that guy or that girl enough that they're they're family. You may hate your family member, but you're with them enough. You know them as well as you know your own family, and often you spend more time with them than you do with your family. Uh, They deserve your support, and we should be putting some deposits in their emotional bank account uh, when they're looking like they're uh, getting into the red. Yeah, and I think that that's a good point. I've said this before. If, you know, EMS has to be the most compassionate. And I think that one of the things that you now have to think about is how do you help the people that really need the help? And we, you and I have touched on this when we've talked about PTSD, when we've talked about peer suicide, and we really have to be there to help folks out. But I think one of the things that I want to, you know, just, just to impress upon the people who are out there, don't allow the situations to define who you are or who you mm-hmm. become. If you've gotten to the point where you're, you have compassion fatigue, and I think I've gotten compassion fatigue on this show already, but uh-huh. if you've come to the <laughs> point of compassion fatigue, you really need to identify why. Because one of the things that I think is going to happen there is now you've opened yourself up for PTSD. Now you've opened yourself up for depression. Now you've opened yourself up for poor health. And I think that one of the things that you've got to think about now is how do we, how do we pull ourselves back if you are correct and you say that this may be the only job I have to make ends meet and put food on my family's table, you've got to be able to find the joy that you once had in your job and make yourself committed and dedicated and professional and not allow a situation or not allow a group of managers. And you brought up managers, and I, and I hate that word. You, you manage processes. I hate you that manage word schedules. I hate those kind of people. You, you don't manage people. <laughs> you lead people. But, That's but, right. the, but the point I want to make is don't allow those things to, to, to tear you down. And I don't know what the secret is to bring you back, but I would like to find a way to, for you to find some joy in what you're doing and, and to you know, really kind of turn yourself around and, and kind of feel that you're making a difference in somebody's life. And, you know, we, well, we go through the BS, man, and, and we go through the dialysis paralysis. And, you know, we've, we, we, we're taking the same people, the frequent flyers. to the. But you know what? I mean, there's got to be some type of joy in that as well. You learn something from every single patient. And I think that we need to figure out to do that. But I'm going to give well, you the last word. It's simply a loss of perspective. Depression. Uh, suicidal ideation, that sort of thing. Um, just had a, had a friend uh, on Facebook uh, who committed suicide the uh, uh, day before yesterday. Um, no one saw it coming. No one knew it. Uh, but he was obviously in pain and, and couldn't reach out uh, or didn't feel that he could get the help he needed. Um, and, and people decry that sort of thing as, as selfish, the height of selfishness, and it's a, you know, a permanent solution to a temporary problem, and all that kind of stuff. And all that is true, but it means nothing to the, purpose, the person who is contemplating suicide because they have utterly lost all perspective. All they can focus on is their pain and how to stop it. Those people need perspective in the worst way, and that's our job to provide. Uh, peer support is what 
is the muscle in any uh, employee edu- uh, employee assistance program, any mental health and wellness program at all is going to come down to peer support. And when people are suffering from PTSD, when they're suffering from depression, when they're suffering from uh, compassion fatigue and burnout, uh, it's not that the job all of a sudden got horrible. Uh, it's not that they all of a sudden, their mental makeup uh, went askew for whatever reason. It's simply because over time, they've lost, uh, they've lost perspective on what brought them joy, and they're focusing on the wrong things. Um, it's our job as peers and partners and, and friends uh, and leaders to bring that perspective back. Hey, EMS didn't get to be a crappy profession all of a sudden. You just are focusing on all the things that are that bring you displeasure. Um, you need to realize those things don't matter all that much. Let's go back to thinking all uh, to to uh, focusing on all the things that brought us joy when we started this profession. Hey, I get to it's cool hanging out for twelve hours with my good friend, and we rap and we talk about anything. Um, I don't like talking to people on the on the radio or on Skype, but cool. I get to hang out with Sebolero once a week and argue with him uh, and and rag him because he's mostly wrong and I'm usually right. Uh, that kind of gives me a charge. Um, the same thing applies to our peers. Get them the point uh, and bring that perspective back where they say, I get to go work on an ambulance rather than I have to go work on an ambulance. Uh, because the profession didn't suddenly change. There's still great things about doing this job uh, that are available to us and obvious on every single call. If we open our minds and hearts to seeing and hearing those things, uh, we just lose sight of that fact as we uh, as we get a little overworked and, and burned out and, and we just need to take a step back and, and get our perspective back. But hey, that's what I think. That's what Chris thinks. We know that I'm right and Chris is wrong. Uh, but you don't have to email us to agree with that. We'll take that as a given. But we'd like to know what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and my compassionate co-host, Chris Sebolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you folks next week.